Hello and welcome to Obiter Dicta, a podcast by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland. Each episode, we interview one of Ireland's leading legal professionals on their areas of interest and expertise and how these are informing our current headlines. We also deliver a summary of Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's latest updates across its online services and blog. Your hosts for this podcast are myself, Rachel Sherlock, the Marketing Executive for Bloomsbury Professional Ireland and General Literature Enthusiast. And me, Owen Malloy, a graduate of NUI Galway School of Law and FE1 survivor, I now work as Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's Content Editor, with a particular focus on our online services. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Hello and welcome to Obiter Dicta. For our newest episode, joining myself, Rachel Sherlock, and Owen Malloy is another Owen, author Owen O'Connor, whose new title, National Security Law in Ireland, came out January 2019. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'd be good. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. I suppose just to start us off, maybe you could give us a brief overview of yourself and your work. Yeah, I'm a practicing barrister. I was called to the bar in 2008 and I started practicing in 2009 and that's the main day job. And then I'm also a lecturer in the law school in Trinity, lecturer on the LLM programme. So uh, your book, National Security Law in Ireland, what's it all about? What's it all about? Good question. Um, it's a book that looks at the laws, I suppose, surrounding national security in Ireland and, and sort of what is that? And there isn't really one piece of legislation or one law that deals specifically with national security. So I've looked at a few aspects, looking at the constitutional um, aspects, you know, a right to a free trial, but also to just on the law of evidence and also some European aspects to look at the European Convention on Human Rights jurisprudence and also some EU law aspects, especially with regards to surveillance. So it's a kind of a, it's a mishmash of a few different areas of law. What broadly it looks at what laws Ireland uses to protect itself from threats. And I suppose in Ireland, the main threat we have, or historically has been, um, has been internal, been from uh, terrorist organisations. So obviously the laws surrounding the prosecution of terrorism um, is one of the focuses in the book. And also look at the special criminal court. And then also look at what the constitution says about national security law. And that's, I suppose, long way of saying what the book is about. A few different things. So I, I suppose it's a book that draws on a broad many sources of law, as you said, but it also sounds very practical. How, how did you come across the idea or how did you think up the idea of writing this book or what is the origin story for, for the book? Yeah, um, when I, as I said, I went deviling or I started practice in 2009. I went, whilst I was training as a barrister doing deviling, my master, he was involved in the defence of people accused of IRA membership in the Special Criminal Court and I was I was a devil. I just found it absolutely um, fascinating. It's something you don't really cover that much as an undergraduate. I think I'm trying to think back to my undergraduate years. I think it's perhaps maybe one class in evidence you touch on special criminal court really, really fascinating experience you know great senior counsel in this you know really top of their game fascinating area of the law and then as a result of that um i thought there might be the possibility of doing some research on the subject and it was kind of strange for me because i finished college went to work for a year then went to, went to the inns and i was thinking there's no way on earth i do a master's or anything like that i just wanted to get in to practice so then after having done this i had to think about doing a PhD and I applied to a PhD in Trinity. So that's roughly where the idea for the book came for. I did a PhD on informers and informer privilege and the book builds on the PhD thesis. So just it's not, hopefully it's not as boring as a PHD thesis. <laughs> like it, it is a PhD kind of as a structure, but it has developed it a lot more. So that's where roughly 
the idea for the book came from. That's, that's very, very interesting. I mean, so I suppose we'll take it up there. Um, so as you say, some of the focus of the book is, is placed on informers and the idea of an informer privilege. To a layperson, like, what exactly is informer privilege? Simply put, we know in Ireland that informers have a bad name. If you're a member of the IRA and the IRA would find out that you are informing, there's a good chance you'll be shot and murdered. So informer privilege is evidentially a rule which says that if you give information to the authorities, your name should be protected. And there's a, just kind of two good reasons for that. Firstly, it encourages people to give information to the authorities. Like obviously, you're not going to give information to the guards if you think your name's going to be leaked. That's, that's an obvious one. Also, it um, helps the guards or the state prosecute crime because it can say to potential people are going to help them, look, we will look after your name. You can tell us that information in confidence. What that means in a trial is that if you're the informer, informer privilege will prevent your name being adduced in evidence so it's kind of like you we all know it's you all have some familiarity with the evidentiary privileges you know i've heard of doctor client privilege attorney client privilege which protects you know what what is said between an attorney or a doctor as the case may be so uh, form privilege is a type of privilege which protects the name of the informer so it's great from the informer's perspective obviously the difficulty is for the accused if you're the accused and let's say this the prosecution is claiming informer privilege over the name of the informer and i don't know let's just assume the prosecution says that the informer alleges that you did x y or whatever it is right you obviously as the accused would want to know who that informer is because you might think what the informer is saying is, is wrong or you might say you might be able to say that the informer is saying it for a particular reason and informer privilege prevents you from um, getting the name of that informer in, the, in those circumstances it gives you i'd imagine as an accused party less of a chance to refute what's being said is, is that correct well that's it exactly isn't yeah. it? Like, if you don't know who's saying things about you it's very very hard for you to to challenge that evidence again to give a ridiculous example let's imagine we were all criminals and we're, we're on trial and there's an informer giving evidence to say that whatever alleges that i did something there's a, there is a small possibility that maybe i don't know it's a competitor in the drug trial and he's decided to give false evidence or <laughs> false information like there might be there might be a reason why this given why that is being given and you won't be able to really challenge that now does that happen we don't know i'm just saying it's just a just a possibility we all know if you have an idea of who it is you might be able to say well i know why he's saying that because you know we, we he hates me he's always hates me or whatever you know that kind of way you'll know why you might know why someone is saying something about you so it does really make it very very difficult to challenge what is being said about you um, is there a lot to do with the mechanics of actually make, making sure this happens? Is there a, a strong sense of witness protection in Ireland? Do we have a programme like that? Um, yeah, we do have a witness protection programme. It seems that the modern witness protection programme was set up in the wake of the Veronica Gearan murder in it was June 1996. And the witness protection programme, for obvious reasons, there's not that much information out there about it. So like trying to trying to write about it was difficult. But I have I've done one chapter on the witness protection program, and our witness protection program doesn't appear to be based in legislation. There isn't a you know, for example, the Witness Protection Act two thousand and nine or whatever. Um, and if you tease it out, that would seem to provide some. I would I, I suggest it provide some difficulties in running a witness protection program because we've all seen enough films to know <laughs> that in a witness protection program you usually have your identity changed. You know, that's an obvious one. If there isn't legislation permitting the state to change your name, you wonder, well, do they change the name? Or if they do change the name, well, presumed to what power are they changing their name? Now, obviously, you could 
rather simply get an Irish version of your name, but I don't think that's going to be the, the best level of protection if you simply get an Irish version of your own name. So as I said, it is difficult, it is difficult to see how it operates. Now obviously if the Witness Protection Programme does operate, one of the earliest participants in the Witness Protection Programme arose out of the prosecution, you know, people connected with the murder of Veronica Gearan, and we don't know where those protected witnesses are. And again, there are really good reasons for keeping this information secret and protected but at the same time i think it is possible you know, to also have some level of accountability if you look at the states or canada other common law jurisdictions they have witness protection act which expressly provides you know for example what the state can do and cannot do i wonder why we don't have that here again the, the answer might be well you know if it's not broken why fix it and it's worked, it's worked well so far that's perhaps the reason i suppose we're so busy at the moment with Everything, Brexit especially. It's probably not high up the legislative exactly, agenda. Exactly. I, don't think, yeah. I don't think it's ever going to be high up the legislative agenda at all. So look. Fair enough, I suppose. And then in the book, you also look at, say, how informers are handled in Ireland. You give the example of the Morris Tribunal reports and the De Silva reports into the murder of Patrick Finucane. Can you tell us maybe a bit more about that? Yeah, I looked at them. There's been a fair amount of inquiries into the way that informers are handled um, in Ireland, both uh, north and south. And the Morris Tribunal um, into the activities of the guards up in Donegal, that looked at the way informers were being handled. And as a result of that, uh, Mr Justice Morris made a number of recommendations to, I suppose, improve the way informers are handled. And as a result of that, the guards did heed those recommendations. And now an informer is uh, known as the CHIS, Covert Human Intelligence Source. And there are um, a number of guidelines which regulate how informers are to be handled. And in addition, there have been a number of, of reports up in the north, especially into the murder of Raymond McCord, for example, or um, Patrick Finucane. Very, very interesting, because in these reports from the Ombudsman and from De Silva into his review, the role that informers have played in those murders uh, really comes to the fore, especially in the case of Patrick um, Finucane, who we know was a solicitor practising um, in the north, he studied law in Trinity and practiced as a solicitor. Up there, he was well-known human rights lawyer and involved in the defence of a number of people accused of IRA membership. It would seem that if people failed to make a, a clear distinction between a, a lawyer and a lawyer's client. And it would, it would seem, as a result of the Silver Report, that there was perhaps some knowledge of what was about to occur, or they had some forewarning about generally what was about to happen. And that's a real difficult question with informers in general because if you have an informer let's think about this rationally if you, if you want to have get good information on a criminal gang or terrorist organization you're obviously going to in most cases i presume want to have an informer who is at the heart of that criminal organization or terrorist organization and then if you were to let's say act on on foot of the information provided by that informer and um, well obviously you're going to put the informer who gave you the information at risk You'll identify, you might identify him or her, but then the other flip side of that is, well, then if you don't act you know, to prevent some crime taking place, well, then obviously you're going to lead to the death of someone else. And it kind of, it kind of is topical at the moment. There is another investigation on Operation Canova up in the north into the activities, apparently, of a well-known informer called Freddy Scapitici, and he was uh, allegedly uh, in the IRA, and it is alleged that he was an informer. 
And I suppose the question would be, if, if someone is an, is an informer for the army or the police and they're involved in the murder of persons, does the state then have some liability if it knew what was going on? Very, very interesting issue when you're handling informers like that. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It feels like there's a lot of different aspects to it. But that's not the only thing you talk about in the book. In the book, you also examine the use of mass surveillance and national security. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I am. Um, Obviously, uh, since we're, since we're part of the EU, we're subject to EU law and ECHR law. So I've also looked at the question of mass surveillance. Now, again, since, since Ireland and since Dublin, since a lot of the um, large American social media companies are headquartered in Dublin, a good few of the cases concerning mass surveillance have originated in Dublin. And I think most people are familiar with the privacy campaigner Max Schrems. He has used the Dublin High Court as, a, as maybe perhaps a springboard to get reference, preliminary references to the Court of Justice of the European Union to see very generally to see whether um, surveillance is in compliance with both Irish and EU law. And again, at a general level, you can see why if you were a state or a government, why you would like to have access via mass surveillance to people's private communications. And we all know, like, every time there's a terrorist attack, you'll see some government minister coming on to say, no, we need we need access to people's WhatsApps, and it has to be a backdoor, etc., etc., etc. So mass surveillance um, of people's communications is something that a government or a state would like to be able to use because it offers, it offers huge advantages. So I look at that and I look at particularly the EU and ECHR aspects um, too. It's very interesting to look, it's, it's really only developing in the last few years. And the one of the recent, I think I think it was maybe the summer before last, I think Max Schramm's latest case against Facebook and the safe harbor regime that was referred from the high court to the court in Luxembourg. So it's, it's, it's a really, really developing area of the law. And just for, for people who maybe don't know, the Safe Harbour Agreement, that's, I might be wrong here, but is that the transfer of data that is collected in Europe across to New York? Is that? Is that... Generally, I think I, have to, I haven't looked at it in a little while, but I think it is. Uh, he was saying, if I remember correctly, I, I'm not, I haven't looked at it in a little while, he was saying that it wasn't safe and it wasn't protected. And Facebook was saying that this agreement does provide for the protected use of data um, outside of the European Union. I suppose, again, generally, that would be one of the questions that the Court of Justice of the European Union will answer for us. Again, with regards to mass surveillance, if you look at it, even in the last, you know, when we had, if you even look back to the 80s in the Hydro Gold War and the level of surveillance was quite mechan mechanical with bugs, etc., you'll see. I think there was one former Stasi officer in the secret police in East Germany. He was saying that the level of possible surveillance now you have is just it's just unbelievable. And it's, yeah. it, it puts everything that the East German secret it's, police are going on. It's shit. changing in so many different ways. I think we've seen a lot of that with the Hong Kong protests. That yeah. There's just a level of, of ability to uh, survey people that I don't think even most lay people would have thought possible. It's like uh, Bentham's Panopticon. I mean, um, when you have the Hong Kong protesters using laser technology to obscure their face from AI recognition and things like that. I think protests have changed. That's because crazy. of technology. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> you, wouldn't even, you wouldn't even think of it like a, even a year ago. Yeah, it's it probably was unthinkable. Even reading about the news can cause you to be surveilled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. Like, and I, I said, I think I said in the book, like you'd assume there's a level of surveillance. So if you are a criminal or if you are a terrorist, you'd assume well, there's a good possibility. But now you don't even know the the, the what like what surveillance you are perhaps subject to. It's, it's 
<laughs> then again, there's the flip side. There's all this amount of information that everyone puts online. It's it's a balancing act, really, isn't it, between yeah. privacy and safety? Yeah. Yep, you have to find a balance between that. And I think um, Mr. Justice Donald O'Donnell mentioned that in the, the very kind forward to the book. I mean, like I suppose he would agree with what he says. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it was very interesting um, what she said. He also talked about the Constitution, I suppose, in general, and he makes the, the valid point that the Constitution, even itself, is a very, there's a lot of national security provisions in the Constitution. Um, I know, I look, obviously, thankfully, we haven't been called upon to use them. Like, for instance, it, it, it provides for the suspension of the Article 40 or the you know, habeas corpus procedure in certain circumstances. It also provides for the you know, sittings of the Oireachtas to be curtailed. It also makes, in, in times of war or armed rebellion, makes it very, very difficult to challenge those laws. So I suppose our constitution and the free state constitution before it is this it's characteristic of the, the way in which the state came about, that it, it, that it has these articles in it, which allow for special procedures in the case of a rebellion or something like that. And if you, even if you look at the constitution, um, obviously Article 38 allows for special courts to be established. And we can see that in the special criminal court. And that's been established, I think, since uh, 1972. And that's, that's 40 odd years. That's 40 47 years ago, is it? Is that right? Something like You're that. You're asking two people who work in publishing <laughs> to go with that answer. <laughs> so like, I suppose that's, um, it, it's very interesting because in many ways it shows that national security concerns were very much in the public consciousness at the time. And would you say that maybe this is, has changed over time? Is it, is it as much of an issue now as it was? Or has maybe have, think, has the threat maybe just changed? I think, I think it's always been there. If you, look, if you look back at history, like in Ireland in the last couple of hundred years, I suppose the major national security threat in the 18th century would have been the 1798 rebellion. And we can see that, um, you know, Wolftone, Emmett, the Shears brothers, etc., um, were tried, sentenced to be hanged you know, the possibility of rebellion was a national security threat in the 18th century um, through to the 19th century. And in, in particular, if you look at the 19th century, there was the murders of the Viceroy and the Chief Secretary in Phoenix Park in 1882 by the Invincibles. And like that must must be one of the earliest um, assassinations. You know, you can imagine if, if the Taoiseach or somebody in a similarly high position was murdered by the IRA in the Phoenix Park. You can imagine the Ferrari that would arise because of that. And as a result, directly as a result of that, there was legislation introduced which provided for the establishment of, uh, of a non-jury court, interestingly enough. Uh, and the judges, the Irish judges back then, refused to sit in such a court. And I suppose, look, it's, it's, hard, you can't, it's hard to compare like with like. There was a much a more widespread use of the jury back then, but it is interesting to note that legislation, and there's a clear kind of parallel you can draw with the special criminal court that we have at the moment, insofar as it, it got rid of the jury um, because of a national security threat. So I suppose if you look back the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, we've had um, a national security threat and it primarily has been from an internal factor. And as a result, and I suppose linking back to that internal factor has been, particularly in Ireland, the use of informers to get information to prosecute these um, unlawful 
um, organizations. Again, if you look through history, you can also see a broad parallel. You can also see examples of, again, arising out of the Invincibles murder in the 19th century. There was a guy called James Carey, who was a developer in the 19th century Dublin. He, he swore a lot of uh, young men into the unlawful organization. He was arrested, brought to Kilmainham jail. And then when, whilst he was in Kilmainham jail, an inspector of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, Inspector Mallon, went to talk to him and he, he, he managed to, to trick him a little bit to say that, you know, all of your colleagues have flipped basically and they're going to hang you unless you tell me what went on, you're going to um, face the death penalty do. So he managed to, to flip him using a modern uh, terminology and Kerry gave evidence against his former colleagues and a few few men um, hanged as a result of, the, of his evidence. Now, as a result of that, Kerry was a participant perhaps in Ireland's first uh, witness protection programme. He was given a, a ticket to the New World um, so he got on a boat here, he went down to Africa, and Kerry was obviously a bit of a mouth, because he got talking to a fellow from Donegal, and the fellow from Donegal um, realised who he was, and then uh, when the boat was anchored off the coast of South Africa, O'Donnell shot Kerry and murdered him, um, so that was, I suppose, one, one successful example of the Witness Protection Programme in Ireland. The book also touches on immigration and national security. Again, that's something that's very topical and in, in the, the kind of cultural mind at the moment. How is immigration related to national security? Yeah, especially if we've all seen the news, two, one or two people that came to mind immediately when you're talking about this issue. And it, it's a, it is a very, very uh, interesting issue. I suppose the, the, the question is, um, if you have someone who poses a threat to the security of the population, can you deport them like can you can you balance the rights of the the vast majority of the population against the rights of one person and should you be allowed to deport that person now that the the Strasbourg court has said no if if they are facing a threat of torture or inhuman treatment but it's a very very difficult and interesting that's that's one aspect um, of the deportation of people who pose a national security threat the other related issue is to do with citizenship. If you have someone who has dual citizenship, can you then strip one citizenship away from that person? And if you look at the UK, there's that well-known case of Shamima Begum. I don't know if I've pronounced that. Begum, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Um, and then I think her, her parents had Bangladeshi citizenship, so the Home Secretary stripped her UK citizenship, saying, well, you have it as a default, you have a Bangladeshi citizenship. And I understand that's been challenged um, in the courts in the UK. Again, very, very interesting issues. And what exactly do you do? Or then to complicate it more, what would you do if someone goes abroad and fights in a war abroad and they only have Irish citizenship? Obviously, it would, it would seem that you can't strip an Irish person of their citizenship if he or she only has Irish citizenship. Would the issue there be with the oath of fidelity to the state, or what is the basis for, for that deportation, if you were to pursue that on those grounds? Um, how can the state deport someone? Is, yeah, what, what grounds do they usually try to invoke? Or... Well, I, I suppose the, the, the gist would be that the state says that you pose a threat to yeah. the security of the state. The Supreme Court over the summer handed down a very interesting judgment. I think it's XX and the Minister for Justice on that issue, where it would appear that the state said to a person that you pose a threat to the state, but it wouldn't say why or how that person is posing it. Now, that's obviously massive issues of fairness for the concerned person. If you are not entitled to find out, you know, well, what is the threat? Why do you 
um, say that. And on the one hand, you can perhaps see why the state wouldn't want to give that information. Um, on the other hand, for the case of the person challenging it, it's, it's clearly unfair to them because they might say, well, this information could obviously be incorrect and there's a risk that, you know, I might be sent out of the country on, um, on the basis of incorrect information or evidence. They mightn't have a, a chance to challenge us. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And look, the prime example of that would be, I remember Colin Powell in the UN going, you know, we've got great intel and persuade the UN Security Council to launch the wars in the Middle East. It was only emerged afterwards that the, the intelligence that he had wasn't all that creation was provided by one person. And you, you always think, look, oh, it's America, they obviously have you know, so much great technology and it has to be amazing. This information must be amazing. It could emerge afterwards, but it wasn't. It didn't have weapons of mass destruction. So the whole basis of that war would seem to have been, you know, started off in a falsity. And what happened there, like... Well, yeah, I think it's very conceivable how it would happen with, yeah. you know, our intelligence gathering. Like, yeah, it can happen. It's just, yeah. it's just a risk when you're not able to exactly. challenge something. Like, that's the thing. At the very least, if you have a court case and you have at least lawyers for each side challenging, well, then the judge, he or she has both sides of the equation and they, he or she can say, well, I believe well, whatever their ruling is. Um, I, well, I suppose one question that we're trying to make a point of, of asking everyone because we're, we're going to have a lot of practitioners of varying backgrounds and practice areas in so I suppose one thing because many of our listeners are students if you had any advice to give to a young lawyer or, or students in general what, what would that be about them embarking their career in law? Uh, it's hard to know because it's hard to know if I were back in that position would I have even listened to any advice <laughs> Because if you're you're always told, oh, well, you know, go to the bar, it's really really difficult, and um, you probably think, well, yeah, you know, but like that, that's that'll be a little, it will be different for me. So it's hard to know if anyone would listen to advice um, in the first place. But generally, I would say, uh, I suppose if you want to be a barrister or if you want to be a solicitor, just give it a shot and see um, what happens. Because even if you qualify as a solicitor, it's possible to transfer over to the bar and vice versa. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be um, be put off if, if you really want to be a barrister, if you really want to be a solicitor, and if you end up training as one or the other, I wouldn't let that me off because you can always transfer over at a later point again very generally i suppose try and pick an area that's interesting as far as it's possible <laughs> with law you know try and try and find out if you're going to be working for the rest of your life that, that you do uh, in, enjoy it and i suppose I don't know, if, you, if you do enjoy equity land law or whatever and that's something that you might be saying well that's that's grand but don't just go oh, i want to earn some money in this area so they're going to do that's fantastic and so just to round up national security law in ireland was published in january 2019 and is available for purchase on our website www.bloomsburyprofessional.com a digital version of the book is also available to online subscribers via our irish criminal law service owen thanks so much for coming in and talking with us this has been Oberta dicta a bloomsbury professional ireland podcast to find out more about our titles and online services visit bloomsburyprofessionalireland.com. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening.